We'll be in the book. We'll be closing out the book of Judges uh, tonight, and so uh, um, my hope for us is that we can sort of wrap our minds around what's going on in the book of Judges. Some of the some more complex issues that are happening in the book of Judges. Um, we after tonight we'll be transitioning into First Samuel, Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. We'll be looking at uh, and Chronicles. We'll be looking at really those. The, the main thrust of the story of Israel, the, as Israel establishes a monarchy, the historical things that are happening around Israel and its monarchy, and all of those things, we'll spend the lion's share of our time in this study, uh, in, in that part of the study, just talking about all of the things that are going on around it, leading all the way up to um, the destruction of, the, of uh, Jerusalem in the Babylonian captivity, and then coming out of that and, and how that leads us into the New Testament, we'll spend some time in intertestamental history, so from like 400 uh, up through the time of the New Testament, because that's really, really important uh, as we then kind of go into New Testament times. And so um, that's kind of a broad overview of like the next 10 years, but that's how it's going to look, uh, I think. And so, but we're, we're closing out the book of Judges, and the reason that I want to do what we're doing tonight is because much like the book of Joshua, Judges has a lot of really difficult things to wrap your mind around. And as you read through the book of Judges, um, some stories that are told in the book are, are hair-raising, really, and are just sort of even nauseating, you might say. And uh, so we're going to spend a little bit of time just unpacking and helping us think through how do we deal with this? What, what do we believe about this? How do we uh, interpret this? And what do we tell people when they have questions about it? And really, my hope for this whole study, really, but especially for tonight, is kind of envisioning you sitting next to a seeker, someone that's reading through the Bible and trying to understand. And as you do, as you can imagine, if you're new to this whole thing, and you're just sitting down with the Bible for the first time. You open to the book of Genesis because, duh, it's the first book of the Bible. So you start with first, right? You read through Genesis. You might make it through Exodus. If you do, you get to Leviticus and you're like, oh my goodness, I don't know how I'm going to make it. And then if you do power through Leviticus, you get to Numbers and, oh, that's even harder. And so, but then eventually when you get to Joshua and Judges, you start dealing with some ethical stuff. And you have to unpack that. And my hope is for you, as someone who might be veteran to Christianity, you could sit down next to a seeker and you could help them to understand what's going on in the book and help them rightly interpret what's happening. Because if not, it's a temptation, if you're not in the know, to read the book of Judges and think that everything that's happening there has God's stamp of approval. And that's really problematic because that's not at all the case. And you, you, it's right to help them help us understand that. So what I want to do tonight is basically look at some of the questions that people have about this book and how we can understand what's going on there. And so the first thing that we see right out of the gate of the book of Judges is that there's some really violent atrocities that take place in the book. So Israel, much like what happens in Joshua, the book of Judges is sort of a carryover from what's happening in Joshua, where they come into the land and they're trying to uh, rid the land of enemies. And to do so, they have to do some really kind of gruesome things. And so if you look there in Judges 1-2 in your verse packet, um, Judges 1-2, it says, The Lord said, Judah shall go up, Behold, I have given the land into his hand. But then you look in verse 8, and the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And so it's not just that, that the children of Israel are going up against these cities and are putting them to the sword. They're killing everybody. And then they're basically the funeral is one big burning of the city. It's not just that. It's that the Lord is clearly commanding them to do this. And not only is he commanding them to do it, but he holds them responsible and he judges them when they don't do it. So you look in 2, 1 to 3, because it's obvious 
that I, I don't know if it's so much that they had a problem doing this or that they had any moral problems doing it as much as it was they started to adopt some of the gods of those people and they started to think, hey, they make better slaves than they do anything else. But for one reason or another, they fail to drive out the people that are in front of them. And God tells them in Judges 2, 1 to 3, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So what's very clear is that God is holding them accountable for not putting the cities to the sword, for not burning them to the ground, for not killing the residents, for not driving them out. And so people, when they, when they read this, you can understand their pause at being kind of okay with this happening. But you, un- you have to understand some of what we've done as, um, as a society is we've sought to strip God of His sovereignty, of His kingship, of His right to rule, of His dominion over all of creation, over His authority, over His justness, over His righteousness, over His power and might over his worth for being worshipped. When we come together on Sunday, that's what we gather to do. We're, to be honest with you, there, there's benefit that we gain from being here amongst one another. We've talked about that at length. In singing, we edify one another. In hearing the word, we grow. We, we're, there's benefit to being here. But that's not the primary reason we gather. And I hope if I've brought anything to this church is an understanding that hopefully driving every single week is that what we are here to do is to worship God because he's worth it. That's why we're here. That's what worship means. It's worthship. It is declaring worth to God. That's why we gather together. That's the purpose of the church is to worship God. So what we've sought to do in some regards by making really worship services about us, by singing, making our songs primarily about how we feel about things and making a lot of things about our emotions and our feelings is that we've, we've attempted to strip God of his sovereignty and his power and his might and his worth for being worshiped. Because if he is that, then he has the right to judge anyone for any reason. Because he created them. Period. So what happens then is we get, uh, not that this is just new to our generation, this has been around for some time now, but one of the people in our generation, um, I guess sort of he's self-titled one of the four horsemen of the atheistic apocalypse, um, which is sort of ironic, his name is Richard Dawkins, and it leads him in the God delusion to say this about God. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Notice, uh, fiction. Uh, jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, I could say that better, Uh, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. (laughs) Um, But you have to understand that a lot of people, particularly in my generation, okay, a lot of people in my generation and below are reading Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is highly influential over our culture. Who are the others? Uh, I don't mean Jonas. Yeah, I'll think of them. Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, who has died and has met the Lord, um, and one other, I've got to think of him. He's the, all the, the one I forget every time. And it's him. He has a name. 
His mom gave it to him. And yeah, there you go. Um, what is it? No, it's not Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, it'll, one, it'll hit me probably in the middle of the night. And I'll, I'll text you. I'm going to text you right in the middle of the night. <laughs> I figured it out. I'll call you. Bat phone you, you know. Pick up. I got the answer. So, but what you, what, uh, Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett. Yeah, there you go. Daniel Dennett. <laughs> Where's the wonder? Um, so, do what? I missed something. Um, so, the, but the point is that Richard Dawkins' interpretation of God doesn't happen in a vacuum. That, that is uh, born and bred out of a total and complete misunderstanding of who God is. A, a complete and fundamental, I mean, you can see it at the beginning of his statement that he's the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Uh, so you can see even there, it, that, that mentality, that thought about God is, has bled into the culture, or really probably is more likely a product of the culture. And so, the, but the point is what, what, I'm, what I see and what we're seeing in our culture now with people even my own age, is when you sit across the table from them, even if they're interested in Christianity and they're reading the Bible and they're having questions about it, a lot of their questions are built from this fundamental premise about who God is. So we're having to break that down first and help them see the real God of the Bible and not come to the Old Testament and go, well, the God of the Old Testament, he's angry and really mean. But then when you get to Jesus, or when you get to the New Testament, assuming you chop out Revelation altogether, assuming you scrub out a lot of what Paul says, assuming you scrub out a lot of what John says in his other books, assuming you take a little eraser to a lot of things Jesus says, you sort of doctor Jesus up to this sort of hippie Jesus that we've painted him as now, and kind of put him out there as a kind of a really cleaned up, uh, very nice, put in a box sort of Jesus, assuming you do that, then you get an Old Testament God who seems mean and angry all the time. And then you see Jesus who's saying, he and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he comes really nice and helpful and he's healing people and he's putting people's ears back on and he's doing all kinds of great, wonderful majestic things that we would really want from God. We'd really want God to be. Again, you have to scrub out a whole lot of stuff to get that, but let's just say that's what... So they're, but they're coming with that in their minds about who God is, and so they're asking the questions, why the disparity between the two books? And here you get in Judges, well, he's telling people to go in and kill these people, and, and he's judging his own people for not doing it, and... Why is he doing that? He's demanding worship and he's telling them, I'm a jealous God. I don't want you to have any other gods. And, and it just seems sort of something I would do. That doesn't seem like what I would think God would do. And so, um, it's, I don't think it's very helpful, but it, 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 it at least helps us understand where, the, where our culture is coming to from and the questions that they're asking. But as we read the book of Judges, we should always remember that God is a just judge. He's a just judge. And He can't be so and allow injustice and corruption to continue. Because the very same people that would say, well, why are the children of Israel going in and cleansing the land, that doesn't seem very happy. Why is God so mad all the time? Would then really be mad if Hitler was still around today killing Jews. They'd be the same ones that are saying, why isn't God doing something about this? Why doesn't he just, I don't care how he does it, why doesn't he just strike Hitler dead? Wouldn't we all be saying that? And so, it, um, it if he allowed injustice and corruption to continue, how could he actually be just? Um, so there's a pagan culture in the land of Canaan, and that pagan culture that's happening in the land at the time 
should be the lens that we look through as we interpret the book of Judges, that God is judging a people. They have committed real sins, real atrocities, and God is sending the nation of Israel in to judge them. Wherever the kingdom of God goes, for the people that are its citizens, there is benefit. Wherever the kingdom of God goes, for the people that are its citizens, there is benefit. But for the people that are not its citizens, there is blood. Period. There always will be. So, that's a lens that we have to look through to interpret, I think rightly, the book of Judges. What's happening in Canaan is that the people are reenacting these stories of their gods and as they come to worship them. So they develop these cultic, um, well, they, the Old Testament's going to call them high places, but they develop these sanctuaries, if you will, uh, and they, they come and reenact the stories of their gods. And what these stories have in them are violence and cruelty and lust. And so what they do to please their gods, do I have that up there? Yes. Um, what they do to please their gods is they, they do things like sacrifice their children. They have temple prostitution. They have cultic, other cultic practices that are gross and that are awful and that are abomination to the Lord. And God tells Abraham back in Genesis, look, I'll send your people in. I'll send my people in, your children. But their sin isn't full yet. But when it becomes full, they'll go in and judge is the implication. So it's not like the Old Testament is ignorant of the fact that, hey, this might seem cruel, but you need to know this, that the Amorite's sin is mounting, and God is being very patient with their sin. Um, and so that's the interpretive lens that I think we have to look through. That's at least one of them. We've talked about another, and we'll talk about it a little bit more tonight, but... Um, that the, the, over the course of the book of Judges, what starts out as maybe some promise in the first eight verses or so, ends up very quickly changing and becoming awry when the people don't drive out the people before them. They don't judge them like God had told them to judge. They don't really exercise the dominion of God's kingdom like He has told them to do. And so there's punishment, but then there's judges that rise up, and these judges seem to be, at least at first, pretty okay, somewhat decent. And then they quickly spiral downhill very fast. So that's another lens that we have to look through when we, when we read the book of Judges is knowing that by the time you get probably in the second half of the book, things are going to be really heinous. Things are going to be awful because as they continue in idolatry and continue coming back to it, they become what they worship. And so they become vile people even when they make small corrections to do things good, they make drastic, really terrible decisions uh, on towards the end. So it's another uh, helpful lens, I think, as we look at the book of Judges. And so most of the things that are happening in the book that we're going to consider are really towards, at least from chapter 9 on, and most of them are going to be in the back half of the book. So the first uh, real character that we're going to see and we have some issues with, and maybe they're really quite easy, but they're at least some, is Abimelech. Remember, Abimelech is the son of Gideon, one of the sons of Gideon. And um, Abimelech takes some actions that the narrator makes very clear God has some involvement uh, in this process that Abimelech goes through. And it's sort of confusing as to how God is related to this and what God does. Because he sends a, really a wicked spirit to Abimelech and to his people. And so it, it, it seems to be sort of strange. But what you see here in the Abimelech story for the first time, and Judges 9 points this out, that where most of the conflict happens outside from the, the children of Israel to the outside, the people of Canaan, the story of Abimelech is an internal struggle. There's internal conflict amongst the Israelites, and it seems that Yahweh has stirred it up. Look at Judges 9, 23 to 25, and then 56 to 57. Who will read that out loud for me? 
God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the balance done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel, correct? Yep. Might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brother. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against them on the mountaintop, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told to Abimelech. And then 56 to 57. Uh, now, some of us that grew up in the church will probably be like, when we read that story, go get them, God. <laughs> right? But Matt, put on your seeker hat. You're reading the Old Testament for the first time, and what do you see? But uh, God sending, uh, there in 23, God sending an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And boy, howdy, how do we understand that? Uh, God sending an evil spirit, God using this evil spirit, and what does it do but throws them into confusion, and it leads Israel, uh, well, the people, the, at least part of the people of Israel, to turn inward on themselves and have some, some very uh, internal conflict going on there. Now, the I can't stress enough the importance of the context that all of this occurs in. You have to read it all. You can't read just part of it. If you read just part of it, you, you can get in trouble really quick. But I can almost guarantee you with 90, we'll say 99.9% .9 of any problems that you'll see and you'll read and you'll go scratch, make you scratch your head in the Bible, if you read beyond it a few chapters and you read before it a few chapters, the author will give you some clues as to how you're supposed to understand what's happening there. And if you really pay attention to cities mentioned and you pay attention to where things happen and you pay attention to some of these understated things, you'll start to see evidence of why these things are happening, things that you're supposed to pick up on. And so when you take a closer look at the story, you see that Abimelech has been paid tribute out of the temple of Baal. We see that in Judges 9.4, towards the beginning of the Abimelech story, when Abimelech goes before the, you remember the story, he goes, he's the son, of, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, but he's the son of Gideon, he goes before, Gideon has like 30 kids or something, and he, he goes before uh, these people, he's a kind of an enterprising young man, and decides, hey, if you uh, want, I'll be the king over everything, and you, uh, rather than have all these other kids rule over you, and so uh, they decided that sounded good to them, and so they paid him money, and they paid him money out of the temple of Baal. Look at uh, Judges 9.4. They gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Barit. That means um, the, uh, the Lord of the Covenant, but it's a temple of Baal, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. See, he's the uh, first one to have an entourage. Hangers on, all right? <laughs> They're uh, all the way back in the Bible. You have a lens through which you can see the stuff that goes on today. Uh, but he has this worthless entourage that follows him around, but he received money out of the temple of Baal. So immediately when you see that, that should raise some red flags, Right? What does it mean when there's someone claiming to be king? King over what? King over what? The people. King over all of Israel. Wait a minute. Who is the king of Israel supposed to receive his direction from? His support from? Yahweh. Who is Abimelech receiving his support from? Baal. Oh boy. Okay. Now we've got uh, a conundrum here, okay? We've got a, we've got what we have actually in the Abimelech story is, is a power struggle. But the power struggle is not between Abimelech and the people. The power struggle is between God and Baal. Yahweh 
and Baal. Who is going to win? Okay, that, that's really the question that comes up, is who is going to win, reader? Let's see what happens, okay? Um, so what we then find out is that um, he actually goes and kills, Abimelech takes the 30 pieces of silver, he goes and he kills, or 70 pieces of silver, that was 30 was Judas, 70 pieces of silver, he goes and he kills the other sons of Gideon. However, the place where he kills them is really important. Look at uh, uh, 9, 5. And he went to his, whose? Father's house. At where? Ophrah. Not Oprah. Ophrah. And killed his brothers, the sons of Yerub Baal. That's, uh, that's Gideon. Seventy men. On one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself. Okay. So here is uh, his son, here is um, uh, Abimelech going back to Gideon's home place at Ophrah and killing all of his sons right there. Okay. His brothers. Well, stepbrothers. Yeah, half brothers. That's what it is, half brothers. So goes and kills all of his half-brothers so that they can't rule over him. Him having received money from Baal. All right. Now, but let's remember what Ophrah is. Go back to Judges 6.24, right there in between them. Then Gideon, remember this, Gideon built an altar to who? To the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abirazites. Whatever. Jawbreakers. Now, what is an altar made of? Stone. So there at Ophrah, Gideon builds a, has this massive stone, and he sacrifices to whom? Yahweh. Abimelech receives money from Baal, goes back to Ophrah, where his father had created this, had made this stone altar and had sacrificed to Yahweh, and he kills his brothers on it. Probably it's the same stone. If not, the author of Judges is leaving it intentionally ambiguous to help you see, help you follow the breadcrumbs to see this is an all-out war between Abimelech and his god, Baal, and Yahweh. Who's going to win? All right. So then, the story of Abimelech is really playing on this theme of Baal contending with Yahweh. And so we know by the end of chapter 9 that Yahweh is sovereign as not only are Abimelech and the corrupt people of Shechem defeated, but in doing so, the temple of Baal is actually destroyed. Look at 9.46-49. to 49. Somebody read that out loud for me. When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elberit. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Salmon, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand, cut down a bundle of brushwood, wood, and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what you've seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle, and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Uh, I think I put in the wrong verse, but okay. Um, never, <laughs> nevertheless, the end of the story, um, the temple of Baal is destroyed. Uh, 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 Abimelech and his people are sent into confusion and destroy each other. And so you've got what you've got in God sending the evil spirit is I'll show you who is actually in charge. Now, we, we, I use this expression all the time, and it, it's true in Abimelech's story. It's true throughout the Bible. Uh, straight licks with crooked sticks. God makes, God, uh, makes straight licks with crooked sticks. Uh, it's, uh, he, all he has is crooked sticks. Evil spirits, all kinds of things. He uses everything at his disposal to ensure that his will is accomplished. And the question is, in the book of Judges, is Abimelech going to, with the power of Baal, defeat Yahweh and rule over Yahweh's people? And the answer is no. 
Not at all. Not even a little bit. So it helps us to understand as we read the context, this is what's actually going on. This is what is called into question. And this is what the book of Judges is helping us see. Is that there is no king over Israel except God. And Israel gets that really crooked. And they will, get it, they will continue to get it crooked. Um, so then we have the story of Jephthah. Um, so in the story of Jephthah, it seems as though God has responded favorably to human sacrifice. You remember the story of Jephthah? Jephthah is, has the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God rushes on him and he makes a vow and he says, the next, if I win, the next thing that comes out to meet me out of my house, I will dedicate to the Lord. I will sacrifice to the Lord as a burnt offering. Who walks out? His daughter. Only daughter. He didn't have, and it, it makes clear, I'm not talking about just mentioning just the daughters. He didn't have any sons either. He didn't have anybody. He had the one kid. His only child comes walking out of the house. And he laments and he weeps and he moans and wails and all kinds of things. It was a really stupid thing for him to do. All right. But at the end of the story, he completes his vow, it says. He fulfills his vow. And so you're left going, that makes me uncomfortable. Is this something that God condoned? Did he, uh, did he say, hey, Jephthah, you've got to fulfill your vow. Would God have punished him if he didn't fulfill his vow for doing this? Uh, so anyway, it becomes a, a bit of a question, and we have to really deal with it. So the first thing that we have to know is that the Spirit of Yahweh coming upon a person does not mean that the, um, that the judge becomes a model of moral purity and devotion to Yahweh. That's one of the questions, right? The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and then he does this. And so well, what does that mean then about the Spirit of God that he you know, does these kinds of things? But the important lens that we have to look through when we're reading the book of Judges is that they don't beca- just because the Spirit of God comes upon them does not mean they become these kind of moral elites. Just look at Samson. My goodness. I mean, <laughs> no, they, they don't. In fact, in the book of Judges, it, really the first judge, the first couple of judges are the only ones that we're kind of okay on. The rest of them are really scoundrels for the most part and do some really kind of shady and corrupt things. What it is is that the Spirit of Yahweh gives them the strength and the desire to drive out the enemies that are before them. Remember what he told them at the beginning of the book. I'm not going to drive them out anymore. I'm not going to do it. Who's driving out the enemies before the children of Israel? Is it their battle axes and their massive armies? No, it's God who's driving them out. He's the one that's driving them out. In fact, when they begin to sin and they uh, get twisted, and in 1 Samuel they use the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm, and they try to bring it out there to battle, and you know everybody rub it, and not really because they'll die, but you know get the you get the idea. They use it as a good luck charm, and and they get defeated because of the way that they understand the Ark. And so when they get things twisted, they lose in battle. It's God that drives out the people before them, and He makes that clear. I'm not going to do it anymore. So when he rushes on a judge, what do we see? But they have this gumption to drive out the people that are there, and they are successful in doing so. So the Spirit of God coming upon, rushing upon a person is designed to accomplish exactly that. They're there to give them the strength and the desire to drive the people out of the land, and they accomplish that when they do it. Um, And in fact, what we see is that it was because of his compassion and mercy that Yahweh gave Jephthah victory. We see in 10.16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel, meaning he, he, uh, he didn't want to see them in misery anymore. He was compassionate and merciful, and that's the reason that he gave Jephthah victory. It wasn't because uh, his spirit was on him or because he made this vow that he gave them victory. He gave them victory because he was compassionate and merciful toward the people. And so the very fact that Jephthah was trying to manipulate God by vowing to offer a human sacrifice is evidence that Canaan had already reached its tentacles into the children of Israel. 
that it was already well woven into their hearts. Uh, John describes the Antichrist this way in 1 John. He says uh, the, the Antichrist is coming and indeed is already here. How is that possible? Well, he's saying that there is an Antichrist coming, but indeed now his tentacles have reached back through history and wrapped themselves around false teachers that are in pulpits. That they're, they're teaching falsely. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. That is Antichrist right there. So the spirit of the Antichrist is right here. So what is kind of happening in Israel is that Canaan is there and their tentacles have reached through the hearts of the Israelites and they've already begun to pick up their practices. We've seen that already. They've begun to pick up their practices and it only continues to get worse. Had Jephthah actually been committed to keeping the law of the covenant, he would have known that God abhors human sacrifice. That is not something that God desires. Now, there is some question as to whether what Jephthah does is actually sacrifice his daughter. Now, first thing you could probably point out is verse 31. It says, well, if the didn't he offer her as a burnt offering? Isn't that what it says? Um, so some suggest that what Jephthah actually commits her to is celibacy. Now, the reason for the burnt offering that I will give as a burnt offering, I think that's in 31 of chapter 11. You can confirm that probably. Actually, why don't we just read it? Uh, eleven twenty-nine and following. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah as he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah and Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever, probably more like whomever, comes out of the, from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them from uh, Ero Air to the neighborhood of Minith, twin, uh, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Now, um, the question is, well, what is that? Didn't he say he's going to offer her as a burnt offering? Offer, well, what ended up being his daughter as a burnt offering? I mean, isn't that what he's saying? Well, the way that you could understand that is the same way that Aaron and the other priests were dedicated with a burnt offering. That they were dedicated to the Lord by burnt offering. That they were, uh, there was a burnt offering given, and what that was was a sign that these people are set apart for the Lord. Paul uses very similar language in uh, Romans chapter 12. You, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. Um, so that would be one way of understanding that there, that Jephthah, what Jephthah is actually promising, uh, which, as it turns out, is his only daughter. He has no other kids. If, if indeed what it's saying is that she's dedicated to a life of celibacy, what does that mean for Jephthah? End of the line, buddy. No more chillins. All right, they're over. Okay, now, in support of that view, look at 1137 to 39. Look how many times celibacy, virginity, not having kids, and all that is mourned over. 37 to 39. So her, she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountain and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel. Uh, um, so, essentially, you could understand it that way. That's the way some have suggested that it should be understood, that it's best understood that way. Um, I'm still out on it, to be honest with you. I'm not entirely sure which way I should understand it. Uh, I would say at the same time, if this is an actual offering, 
that he's making and killing a, a human being to complete his vow, this is not approved by the Lord. There's no indication that that's ever approved by the Lord in the text. And uh, we know from the text that one of the reasons that Israel is judging the people that are in the land is because of human sacrifice. This is not something the Lord honors. Uh, it's something that he abhors. And so what we understand that's happening in the book of Judges is they're progressively getting stupider and stupider because that's turns out what sin does to a person. It just makes them dumber. Um, okay. Then we have this story at the very end of the book of Judges about a concubine. So in chapter 19, there's this really terrible story of a concubine of a, Levi, a Levite who, has, uh, who was given to a group of, of men that gang-raped her and left her for dead. Um, the, if you read this story and then you go back and read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you will see the parallels. And this is the way it actually functions in the book of Judges, is that you understand who is becoming Sodom and Gomorrah. The Benjaminites. The children of Israel are becoming Sodom and Gomorrah. That is the point of the story. That what sin actually ends up doing, what idolatry, what the, the culture of the Canaanites ends up doing to the children of Israel is it turns them into Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the author draws these strong parallels between this story and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. As Israel becomes more and more depraved, the actions they consider right become increasingly catastrophic. Now, there, as you get to the end of the book of Judges, there's this refrain that keeps coming up over and over again. And it's changed a little bit here and there, but it, but it comes up uh, four times by my count. Look at 17.6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Then in 18.1, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Okay, he doesn't say, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, but he's bringing that in. The author is bringing that in from the previous statement. There was no king in Israel, and so what that means is everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So now when I say there's no king in Israel, you are to understand, and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. He prefaces this before every single just dumb decision that Israel makes. So in 18.1, Dan, the tribe of Dan, decides we don't like our allotment. We don't like our land. Do you know why they didn't like their land? Because the Philistines were on the last half of their land, and they were too scared to drive them out. And so they stayed in the hill country, and it ended up being kind of small for them. And so they decided, we don't like our land. We don't like our allotment. And so, what does it mean that you don't like your allotment? Who gives you your allotment? God gives you your allotment. So when you don't like what God has given you, you reject God. That's what that means, right? So when you gripe about things that God has given to you, that's a rejection of God. Okay, so that being said, Dan then takes a priest and makes him a a priest to another god and goes way up north and establishes another territory way up north. So sometimes you'll see maps that'll have Dan down here toward the Mediterranean Sea, and then sometimes they'll be way up there up the north. Well, what's happening there? Are they like Manasseh where they got two different territories? No, they're idolaters. And so they picked up and left the land that God had given to them and went north. So he says, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So then in 18.1, before going into Dan, remember what I told you, there was no king in Israel, dot, dot, dot. Okay, and those days, this is what Dan did. Then what does he do in 19.1, right before the story where this concubine gets just abused by a town full of people, in those days, there was no king in Israel, dot, dot, dot. You're supposed to understand what that means. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And so they go into the town of Benjamin. And the irony here is that the man that's walking with his concubine, that's going into this town, which we can talk about concubines later when we get to Solomon but, um, and David, but uh, this man is going into his own town, and they say, well, let's, let's camp here. And he says, no, we're not going to camp with those pagans. We're going to camp with our own people. 
And so they go to the town of Benjamin, and the irony is that their own people are the one that end up doing this to them. And so, uh, how does the book end in 2125? In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the last line of the book of Judges. How do you think the author of Judges is hoping that you interpret the end of this book? Is this something that God loves, gives a stamp of approval? Look at these moral, upstanding people. These are my people. No. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. These are morally depraved individuals who have turned into Sodom and Gomorrah. So the concubine is abused and dies because of abuse. And the man comes home and sees that she's been abused, and so he cuts her up into 12 pieces. This is heinous. It's horrible. Cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends her to all 12 tribes. What is that? That's a declaration of war. So what happens then to the tribe of Benjamin who did this to this woman? All the other tribes mount up together and they come and create war against Benjamin. The irony here is that at the beginning of the book, they're supposed to go into the land of Canaan and drive everybody else out. And at the end of the book, they turn into Sodom and Gomorrah and 11 tribes are driving out one other tribe. Putting them to the edge of the sword. Killing them. That's the irony. Because why? Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. They rejected king over all of Israel. They rejected God as king over them. They adopted the gods of the Canaanites. And what happens? So it shows us, the book of Judges shows us, is teaching us about leadership and the tragic downward spiral of Israel's leaders and people as they begin to adopt Canaanite practices and idolatry. And when the people of God remove God as their king, everyone does what's right in his own eyes. Now, let's go back to Richard Dawkins' statement. He's jealous. He's proud of it. Let me ask you something. If you really are the best... And you know that if people come, submit themselves to you, and worship you, they will be better off for it. Do you have a right to be jealous? And why are you jealous? You want what's best for them. I don't know a parent in here who isn't that kind of jealous for their children to listen to their voice to obey them, to follow what they're commanding them to do. When your child walks out to the street and you yell at them, are you not at that moment jealous for their attention to be on you rather than the ball that's rolled out into the middle of the street? Of course you are. Why? Because you're petty, unjust, unforgiving, and a control freak? No. Because turning around won't get you killed. Otherwise, you do what's right in your own eyes. Um, vindictive, bloodthirsty, and an ethnic cleanser, cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. Or you're just and righteous. And you know the way life works best for your people. You love them and you want what's best for them. And so there are rules. I guarantee you, if you sat Richard Dawkins down, I'm assuming he's a dad. Let's assume he is. And you ask him if he established rules in his house for how it will operate and function, he would say yes. Every parent does. Why? Because you're a capricious, malevolent bully? Because you're sadomasochistic? Because you're megalomaniacal? Because you just want power? Sure, that's why you did it. No. Because you love your children. It's a lens that we look through. 
we have to put the lens in our glasses that's right as we look at the Bible. It helps us to understand what God's actually doing here. He loves us and he cares for us and he's establishing boundaries, sure. And he's punishing, sure. And he's judging, sure. But he's doing so for our good and his glory because he really is worth worship. We either believe that or we don't. Questions? That's a good question. We're not really told. Um, Here's what we do know. We know that some of them came to know God somehow. Uh, In Abraham's case, you see uh, Melchizedek. Where did he come from? What's the New Testament authors don't even know. The author of Hebrews is like, "Uh huh? He didn't have any genealogy. Look like looks like so." There's a guy, uh, Melchizedek, who's, who comes out of nowhere. Rahab, she hears of them. She knows something about them. Um, there are other people that are met along the way that seem to have some indication of who God is and perhaps worship him in some way um, and repent. And they end up, well, some of them end up in the line of Jesus. But so what we do know is that there, there was at least some information like that that went through we're not told of like a prophet like Jonah that went in and, and preached to them, but the 400 years of patience that he was having with the Ammonites, uh, was it Ammonites? Yeah, Amorites, uh, may have been an indication that there are prophets that are going to them that are preaching to them, but we just don't, we don't know for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the point there in Romans 1 would be that, as it applies to the Canaanites, is you know sacrificing your children is evil. So there's a lot of other people that God didn't judge that way. Um, and it seems like the sacrifice of children was a big, was a big part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Chin. That's part, of, that's part of it. The other is back in 1016, where they put away the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So he's, so uh, it's, it's kind of a, the two, two bad, I guess, bad things, right? That Israel would still be in misery even though they're repentant. He's going to rescue them. Crooked stick, Jephthah, over here, makes a rash vow. Well, I'm still sparing the Israelites. But that doesn't remove the stupidity of Jephthah. You know what I mean? It's, again, it's under, that's, but this is part of a bigger thing, a bigger lens that we look through. The world has fallen. If you, if you look at the world as like, well, there's Hitler, and then there's everybody else. Hitler's the real bad person, and, and then there's me. I'm pretty good, you know. Then, then you kind of have to, you need to go to the Sermon on the Mount and just read through chapter five and go, are you still good? Do you still feel really good about God's standards of righteousness? You know, so that's, I think, the, the, the reason. You've got it, fallenness all around. And so Jephthah is not necessarily rewarded by giving him victory. The people of Israel are rewarded for their repentance, as it says earlier. That's another reason why a lot of people say this isn't human sacrifice that's being looked at here. Because she's like, all right, you know. Honor what you Yeah, kill me on the altar. Some people say that's evidence right there that that's not what's happening, you know. 
again, I, I don't know. I could, I could go either way on it. Go ahead. No, ask me. Yes. Are we hiding it in our hearts? And then is it impacting how we live? Yeah, the, there's a, a passage in Judges. The author makes this abundantly clear. There arose a generation who knew not the Lord, which is a flip from Exodus. There arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. There arose a generation who knew not the Lord. The author of Judges is doing all of that on purpose. He's reaching back into the, into the Pentateuch, assuming you know it using all these little hyperlinks going back to and just letting you kind of cluing you in like that's what I'm talking about Sodom and Gomorrah there arose a generation all of those are calling back to some things you know are really bad there arose a generation who knew not Joseph didn't honor Joseph and the children of Israel there arose a, or there, there's these men that are pounding at the door asking to know the visitor that came into town and all of this I mean that's, uh, what is that? That's Sodom and Gomorrah. You cannot read that without going, that is Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it, some of the same words he's using, he's using the same, same phrases, he's, the same events are taking place here, except they actually take the women that are offered to them and just, and kill them. You know, that's, that's where Benjamin has gotten to, you know, I mean, so all of these things are calling back to that exactly, and it's a product of them not knowing the Lord, not teaching their kids, not knowing their word themselves. What's going to happen to us? What has happened to us? It's happened to the church in America. Same thing. It's just a, it's a, it's a cycle of events. Or it will be the same thing. Yeah. Other questions? Go ahead. Um, maybe we do. Um, that's it, possible. That probably would be better suited when we start talking about Romans and the, the authority that he's given to the government to use the sword. Um, Paul makes that argument explicitly clear. But you might hear that God abhors human sacrifice, except that when it comes to capital punishment, that's not human sacrifice. That's not sacrificing to a God. Um, so... I'm not necessarily saying that that lands you definitively on the side of capital punishment, but just that I don't, I don't think that's a good argument. You know, I, maybe you do hear that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, um, I, I take your word that there, there are people making that argument and using that as, as a foundation. I don't think that's a good argument to make for it, but nevertheless. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Because uh, the he abhors human sacrifice, but then they're going into towns and burning everybody to the ground. You know, so one is capital punishment. The other is um, the other is what they're doing, which is you know, here God have our children. Uh, you might better equate abortion to human sacrifice. Yeah. All right. Let's pray before Tom yells at me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word and. Um, sometimes it is like a, embracing a cactus. We, we, it's hard to understand and, and difficult to wrap our arms around, and sometimes it, it makes us puzzled and have questions and things like that. Um, but allow us, by your Spirit, to, to love what we find there. And more importantly, to love the God that is behind it. Um, to fall more in love with you, knowing that in the midst of our sinfulness, we, in our sinful state, are exactly like the people we find in the book of Judges. And 
allow us, Lord, to see in Scripture that you have redeemed us by the blood of Christ, that you have bought us, paid for us, that you don't look at us as enemies, but as friends, as children, as sons. Um, May we every day grow more and more to celebrate that fact that you have prepared a banquet table for us, a table we don't deserve to be at, but you've given it to us graciously through the blood of your Son. We are so grateful, and may we fall ever more in love with you because of that. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.